Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today is the last of our Talking Politics guides before we get back into actual politics. It's with Martin Rees, Astronomer Royal, one of the world's leading scientists, and he's going to be explaining to us what is existential risk. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just 19.99. Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So maybe we should start just with some definitions. How do you distinguish existential risk from other kinds of risk? Well, I think it's a rather blurred phrase, but what I mean by existential is a risk which cascades globally and is a severe setback to civilization. And one of the important features of the present century is that for the first time we are so interconnected and so empowered as a species that we can envisage that these will be caused by human actions, either collectively or even by a small group. Because human beings have always faced very serious potential hazards. Is the distinguishing characteristic about existential risk that it could be the end of everything, or is it just the human capacity to cause destruction is on a scale we've never seen before? Well, I think it's a latter, and the phrase is perhaps a slightly unfortunate one. Of course, if an asteroid hit and like the one that killed the dinosaurs, that would be a similar existential risk. But the main point is that although we are still at risk from events like that, natural events, they are not getting any more likely. The probability of an asteroid hitting is no bigger now than it was in the time of the dinosaurs. Whereas what is much more concerning is the uh, class of risks which are a consequence of uh, human actions. Because for the first time in the world's 45 million centuries of existence, one species, namely ours, is so dominant that it can affect the entire biosphere and, of course, through technology, can have effects at cascade globally. How much of this is a consequence of relatively recent technological development? Are we talking about risks that really only exist because of the technology of the last, say, 50 years? I think they're the most worrying ones because they're the ones that... uh, we can't predict in the future and where we have no time base to indicate what the uh, chance of survival is. So we have no confidence that we can survive these because we've got no time base on which to compare things. No history, essentially. No, that's right. So I think it's these technological ones which are the most uncertain. But of course, there's another class of risk which stem from the fact that the uh, global population has more or less double in the last 50 years and each person is more demanding of energy and resources and so that is why for the first time we are quite rightly worried about uh, climate change and uh, loss of biodiversity mass extinctions and things like that. So I'm not going to ask you to rank them but say we take that there are four categories here so there's climate change there's what you call bioterror or bioerror We still have nuclear weapons and the possibility of catastrophic warfare. Mm -hmm. And then AI, new technologies that we haven't even begun to conceive, never mind understand yet, that could in the next 50 years have kind of runaway effects. Which one would you prioritise out of those? I think it depends on what timescale one is imagining. If we think on the timescale of a century or more, then we are right to very much worry about climate change. And I think if we 
considered a debate about climate change over the last decade. There's been some debate about the science, but I think the main debate now and the main dissension is not between those who don't believe the science and those who do. Most people accept that there is some, albeit uncertain, projections about global warming, but it's about the discount rate for the future. There's Born Lomberg, who is a sort of bogeyman among environmentalists, but he believes the science and his so-called Copenhagen consensus. They downplay the risk of climate change compared to other ways of helping the world's poor, but that is because they take a standard sort of 5% discount rate and do the calculation as you would if you're deciding where to put an office building, something like that, and therefore they pay no regard to what happens after about 2050. That's discounted away. But other economists like Stern and Weizmann, they would say that we ought in this context to apply a much lower discount rate and be prepared to pay an insurance premium now to reduce the risk from uh, people at the end of the century and care about the life chances of a baby just born today. So I think if we think a century ahead, then we should be very concerned about climate change because on that time scale, it can become catastrophic. And I know you said up front that the word existential is a bit woolly, but when we think about climate change, the threat is to the existence of what? Is it what we now think of as a civilised way of life and human civilization, Or is it actually a threat to life on the planet, to the way that we've actually understood the natural world? Well, I don't think it'll ever wipe ourselves out. It will need massive readjustment in um, coastal cities and things like that on a long time scale. And, of course, it's going to uh, engender mass migrations because it's not just a temperature rise, it's the uh, changes in weather patterns, where the monsoons occur, where the uh, droughts occur in Africa, etc. So it's really those effects which would be very serious. If the the question then is how we discount the future... Mm -hmm. Is part of the challenge with thinking about climate change also that there is the possibility of runaway effects? There's a possibility of a kind of qualitative change at some point. And the reason that you want to group this as an existential threat along with, say, nuclear war is because there is a relatively small risk that this is on a scale that we haven't begun to consider yet. And that actually, to think in discounting terms, misses the possibility, whether it's two decades or ten decades ahead, there is a complete sea change. I think that is right. The Harvard economist Weizmann has done this in detail and says that the main risk is the sort of uh, long tail, the small probability of something really, really bad, and that should dominate the risk calculus. So that is why we need to worry. It's an insurance premium which we should pay mainly as a guard against the really worst case occurring. With that category, which I called borrowing from you bioterror or bioerror. So there is also the possibility now that human beings can interfere with the biological order of things. Bioterror would be releasing some pathogen for malevolent reasons. Bioerror would be an experiment gone wrong. Which of those is the greater risk? Well, I think these are both fairly short-term risks because these technologies are advancing fast and they're widely understood. They can be done in the laboratories which exist in many universities, etc. So on a timescale of 10 or 20 years, I regard these risks as something which is rather comparable to cyber threats. We know already that cyber threats um, at the level of the kid in his bedroom up to the level of a state attack which could hold down the electricity grid in the eastern United States for weeks and in a Defence Department report, which I quote in my book, is said to deserve a nuclear response if that happens. At that level, we are 
vulnerable to cyber attacks within the next decade. Similarly, I think we should be concerned about bio threats. Here, I think it's probably more likely to be error than terror because the reason that uh, governments and indeed organised terrorist groups don't use bio attacks is that you can't predict the consequences so well. But there could be some pathogen released by mistake that would have catastrophic consequences. And, of course, one of my nightmares would be some uh, fanatic who uh, is an ecology extremist who thinks that the problem of the world is too many people. And so let's get rid of as many as we can and would release something. So that's the kind of thing which could happen in the next 10 or 20 years. It's analogous to cyber as a short-term threat, but I think you're also thinking about effects on the global ecology. And uh, here again, of course, the fact that we are 7.7 billion in number and we are affecting land use, etc., and causing climate change, that is going to have an effect on biodiversity. Extinctions are happening at a much higher rate than before, and to quote the great ecologist E.O. Wilson, if our generation causes mass extinction, it's the sin that future generations will at least forgive us for, because that's something irreversible. So the collective effect we can have just by changes in land use and climate are going to reduce biodiversity. But as you say, there are extra high-tech Variants. There's a technique called gene drive, which can be used using the latest kind of gene editing, which can be used to wipe out a species by making it sterile. This has been used benignly to uh, render extinct the mosquito that carries the Zika virus. And some uh, nasty people think we should wipe out grey squirrels this way, and uh, for the sake of be made extinct. But, of course, one worries about any kind of ecological interference of that, thinking of what happened when alien species were introduced into Australia and then had a runaway consequence. So there are those consequences of the misuse of these new advanced techniques. If you compare climate to, say, what we've just been talking about there, one of them looks like a classic collective action problem. Yeah. It's how, how are we as a species, but also how we collectively as governments around the world are going to tackle this. The other one looks more like a, a worry about rogue actors or yes. the possibility that things would, as it were, escape from the system. Mm-hmm. So do we have to think of them as very different? Because existential is this yes. big catch-all term, yeah, but yeah. are these actually very different kinds oh, of risks? They're, they're very different. I mean, there is the class, as you say, which we are causing collectively and can only cope with collectively, like dealing with climate change. On the other hand, these risk which in fact I worry about more and are more distinctive are those caused by the empowerment of small groups and I worry about these because there are of course well-intentioned attempts to uh, regulate dangerous experiments in biotech etc in the spirit of a famous conference in Asilomar in the 1970s when uh, recombinant DNA was first possible and at that time the uh, Research groups got together and decided on a sort of code of conduct and a moratorium, etc. And that was fine. But now there are far more actors, far more countries are involved, there's strong commercial pressures. And what really scares me is that whatever regulations we have for the use of these biotechnologies, enforcing them globally is going to be as hopeless as enforcing the drug laws globally or the tax laws globally. And so that's why my number one risk in the next trend years or so is going to be the misuse of biotech and of course analogously cyber attacks which cause runaway effects and going back to both these things they will have a very serious effect now simply because our societies are so brittle and interconnected 
let me say two things. First, they would cascade globally. I mean, we know the uh, book by Jared Diamond on collapse, where he talks about five civilizations collapsed, but they weren't global. Whereas now, if there's a serious effect in one continent, it's going to escape into the rest of the world because of the financial system and uh, just-in-time delivery, etc., being global things and travel being so frequent. So we have the likelihood that any serious effect in one continent goes global. And I think that that is something really new. And another point is that people's expectations are much higher. To take an extreme contrast, in the 14th century, the Black Death bubonic plague killed up to half the population of some towns and the rest just went on fatalistically. But now, I think, if there was some sort of event... It could be a cyber attack on a city, it could be a natural pandemic. Then, if hospitals were overwhelmed, which would happen for a pandemic when even less than 1% of people were affected, that I think would lead to social breakdown because people would clamour for treatment that wasn't there. So, I think the social vulnerabilities are far greater now, and that is a concern which would aggravate the consequences of a cyber attack that uh, destroyed a city's infrastructure or a uh, bio threat, natural or artificial, which uh, affected even a few percent of the population. We'll come on to AI in a second, but I think we probably won't put this one out on Christmas Day, I think. <laughs> you did use the word hopeless in that answer, but your argument is not that it's hopeless and there are things that we can do. But again, there does seem to be a choice, particularly when you put it like that. We can try and prevent it and we can prepare for it. And that's also obviously one of the great dilemmas with climate change. Is it about mitigation or is it yeah. about actually trying to undo it? But with the bioterror, bioerror, should we be focusing our attention on thinking through scenarios where something like this might happen? Or do we have to just do everything in our power to stop it? Because as you said, it may not be possible yes. to stop mm. it. Well, I should say at the start that I'm not an expert on biotech at all. But I think the answer is to do both. I mean, obviously, one needs to have regulations and uh, try and enforce them as effectively as possible and also provide vaccines against the kinds of diseases one can predict and all that. So I think one wants to both prevent but also, obviously, have scenarios to ensure that we can at least make some attempt to cope with these threats if they occur. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With AI, it's different again from the other two. So with climate change, as you say, the real risks are probably 50, 100 years down the line. Mm -hmm. But the actions are happening now with the bio threats, the risks may be more short term. Mm -hmm. With AI, it's not happening now. I mean, bits of it are happening now. Machine learning is making remarkable advances. But machine learning doesn't look existential as a threat today. No. So we're trying to imagine scenarios that are actually very, very open-ended, as seen from the present. Mm -hmm. 
How should we think about the risks of artificial intelligence from where we are now? Yes. Well, I think in the short run, they are risks which really aggravate, for instance, cyber attacks. I mean, there was a report produced by an academic group in February this year, which uh, emphasised that um, using AI a lone cyber attacker can be more empowered because you can explore a hugely greater variety of, uh, of options. And so AI is going to make certain kinds of cyber attack more likely or more virulent. But I, I don't think it's going to do anything qualitatively new unless we get to the sort of near science fiction scenarios of the uh, machine getting a will of its own that's uh, misaligned with human wishes and getting out of its box and connecting with the internet of things etc and so this is the kind of issue which I think would happen by some kind of malfunction I don't worry too much about the machine getting a will of its own. But it, that's, uh, that's something for us not to worry about, <laughs> right. for now anyway. Yeah. I mean, because after all, that is actually a big focus in the the well, existential I, risk world, the, well, absolutely. the, the Nick it, Bostrom superintelligence. Y- yes, it's given, a, it's given a goal and it pursues that goal without uh, any common sense moderating what it does. That's yeah. certainly The a classic strategy. version, it's told to make paperclips and it carries on making paperclips until there's no room for anything else. Y- yes, mm-hmm. You're not so worried about that. I'm not so worried about that, really. And I I think I'm on the side of people like um, Rodney Brooks, who's the roboticist from Harvard, who made the uh, Baxter robot and the Roomba vacuum cleaner. And I think with him that it's going to be uh, not artificial intelligence, but real stupidity that will be our main concern for many decades. The other risk is the interface between technology and warfare. So there is also an existential risk or threat that we've actually lived with for two to three generations now, which is the nuclear warfare threat. Mm -hmm. But what may be new now is the intersection between very destructive weaponry Mm -hmm. and autonomous machines. Is that something that we should be thinking more about? Well, indeed, and uh, a nuclear war we do need to uh, think about because, of course, uh, when we look back at the history of the Cold War, it's clear that uh, we were lucky to survive unscathed and uh, when one reads what McNamara said afterwards etc about the threats and we learn about these uh, mistakes made by uh, people who were working early warning systems we realised we were lucky. Kennedy said that it was a risk of between one in three and evens at the time of the Cuba crisis so we were lucky and I do think that if those of us who were alive during the Cold War realised just how great the risk was would we have been happy with that policy? I would certainly not have been prepared to risk a one in three or even one in six chance of the destruction of the fabric of Europe, even if the alternative was a certain takeover by the Soviet Union. So I think we didn't realise just how deeply at risk we were during that period. But anyway, if we look at the situation today, then of course the chance of some nuclear weapons going off is probably higher than it ever was. But this would be in the Middle East or India, Pakistan or Korea or somewhere like that. This would not be the global catastrophe which there would have been when each side had more than 50,000 nuclear weapons, which was the case during the Cold War. But, of course, this situation could be just in abeyance. There could be a new standoff between new superpowers later this century, which could be handled less well or less luckily than the Cold War was. One thing that connects all of these, actually two things that connect all of these, that there's interconnectedness, the fact that we live in a shrinking planet where something going wrong in one place is very hard to contain. And the other is new technology. So new technology is part of the story about climate, about bio, about nuclear and about AI. Should we be primarily thinking of technological solutions 
or technocratic solutions to these risks? Or should we be thinking in terms of democratic politics? Because that's also a choice that people often feel they're not sure which way to go, say, with climate. Well, I think going back to climate, I'm very pessimistic about uh, the effectiveness of these plans to have a carbon tax and nations making pledges. I think, and I say in my book, that uh, the real only win-win situation is to accelerate research and development into all kinds of clean energy or carbon-free energy, and I include nuclear in this, so that the costs come down. And countries like India, which need to have more power for a national grid, won't feel obliged to have coal-fired power stations but can leapfrog directly to clean energy because they can afford it. So this is a win-win situation because the countries that develop these new technologies would have a bonanza and it would benefit the countries that need more energy and could then afford to go to clean energy. So that's the one win-win situation. Apart from that, I must admit I'm very pessimistic about the targets being set uh, this month in uh, Poland, etc., being achieved. So in a sense, the pessimism there is about political solutions. Yes, yes, because uh, it would be a political decision. Perhaps you'd need very enhanced publicly funded R&D on the level of defence research in order to develop clean energy. And you probably need a new international organisation, rather like the IAEA, to uh, monitor the use of different techniques for energy generation. So that would be a political situation and a political process which you need to change. Do you have a view about this new movement? It's only been going for a few months now called Extinction Rebellion, which is at the other end of the scale. So there's technocratic Mm -hmm. solutions. Then there's radical people who have, as it were, given up from the other point of view with electoral politics and the timescales of democracy and are saying that actually climate is an existential threat, and they use the language of existential risk. And they say it's an emergency, so it requires emergency politics, which is radical direct action. It is welcome that there are these people who are getting the headlines, because I think the trouble with getting action on climate policies is that uh, most politicians are focused on the local and the short term. And those who've been political advisors on scientific issues to governments, and I've known a few of these, are frustrated because, of course, their masters have short-term and more immediate concerns leading up to the next election. But what politicians do respond to, of course, is what's in the press and in the media and what's in their inboxes. And so, any- and also what's on the streets, as we're and seeing in Paris at the yes, moment. Well, that's the I mean, that's real that, direct That gets in the press. It's not the actual disruption on the street. It's the press coverage uh, which keeps it up the agenda. Uh, to take a more benign example, which had the same effect, before the uh, 2015 climate change conference in Paris, there was the papal encyclical a few months before, and the Pope got a standing ovation at the UN, and he has a billion followers in Latin America, Africa, and East Asia, and that made a big difference and eased the path towards consensus there, uh, because there was public interest in that. And the main way of um, getting action on climate change is to maintain public pressure and Obviously, charismatic figures like the Pope and maybe David Attenborough, they can help. Apart from that, these demonstrations can help. So in a way, it's a twin-pronged thing. I increasingly feel this too, which is waiting for the next election to solve climate change will be waiting way too long. That's right. Yes. And some of it has to be outside of democracy and some of it has to be more mm. radical y- Yes, democracy. yes, yes. But think about democracy, which, of course, is your field. I mean, uh, and going back to AI, then it seems to me, if, if you look at China... 
then, of course, they could uh, have a planned economy that Marx could only dream of, because already they are monitoring 80% of all uh, personal financial transactions, and so they could have all the information needed to make a planned economy work in a way that it manifestly couldn't in the Soviet Union because they didn't have the information. So I think a fully controlled system, if they wanted it, could be implemented now because of AI and these other technologies. One way that people respond to this and and to some of the feelings of despair that this can engender, this sort of sense that we're facing risks on so many fronts, is to think about something that's sometimes called a post-human future, or at least the possibility that actually we have to get beyond who we are now. One way we could do this is by combining human beings with technology. Another way we can do it is by moving beyond the planet into other places in the universe. And you take this seriously in your book. These are serious thoughts, even though they seem quite Mm sci-fi. How should we think about, if we are running these huge risks, and they are man-made risks, as you say, human-made risks, we're responsible for them, and there's a possibility that we don't know how to deal with them. How can we get beyond who or where we are? Well, I think it's clear that we will be able to redesign human beings by uh, studying a genome and being able to synthesize genomes with different potentialities. That's going to happen. And also cyborg technology, intelligent machines, that's going to come. I think we should try and put the brakes on it and try and keep humans as much as they are, at least on this earth. Because I discuss in my book that whereas uh, human nature is unchanged for many millennia, and that's why we can read classical literature from 2,000 years ago and resonate with it. It may be that a few hundred years from now, whatever entities are dominant will have no emotional resonance at all with us. They'll have been changed. Human nature will not be a constant anymore. And I think that's rather scary, and we want to slow it down. However, I do, in fact, discuss the relevance of space exploration to this. There are some people who think that uh, things are so bad on this Earth, we've got to have mass emigration to Mars. I mean... uh, Elon Musk and my... Elon Musk says he wants to die there. He wants to die on Mars, but not on impact, yes. And my late colleague Stephen Hawking said similar things. I think that's a dangerous delusion. I think we've got to accept that uh, the Earth's problems have to be solved here. Dealing with climate change on Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. Nowhere on Mars is as comfortable as living at the South Pole or the top of Everest. So mass migration is not sensible. On the other hand, I think it's would be a good thing in many ways if these pioneers, privately funded, accepting high risks, like Elon Musk, did lead to the establishment of a colony on Mars. And this would be the Wild West syndrome. They'd be away from all the regulations. And they would then have every incentive and no impediment to using all the technologies that would then exist, both bio and cyber, to adapt themselves to this very alien environment. And, of course, it's not crazy science fiction to believe a century from now they might be able to download themselves or produce equivalent electronic entities. And, of course, once intelligence gets away from flesh and blood and goes electronic, then it doesn't need an atmosphere. It may prefer zero gravity. And so they'd go off into the blue yonder. And, of course, if they're near immortal, then an interstellar voyage is no deterrent to them. And so I think if we talk about the post-human future, then I think we want to constrain the rate at which that happens here on Earth, to which we are well adapted, and of course deal with our social problems in other ways. But I think we should cheer on these crazy pioneers who will perhaps trigger 
post-human evolution away from the Earth. One final question. I want to ask you an optimism-pessimism question. It picks up on something we talked about on this podcast, including in relation to your book with Martha Nussbaum. And you mentioned it earlier. What's distinctive about these threats is that they are human-made. So on the one hand, that's partly why they're so terrifying. But on the other hand, it is down to us. As you just said, it's a doddle to tackle climate change relative to colonizing Mars. We could do something about this. It's not like an asteroid. It's not like an act of God. We are the mm-hmm. primary agents here. Yes, yes. Should we take that more seriously? Because there's a fatalism around a lot of these things. Yes, yes. It's us. So if it's us, why can't we solve it? Yes. When you say us, the question is, do you mean the global community? Do you mean a nation? Or do you mean individuals? Or and science, we even. Don't know and scientists. Scientists, of course, have a global perspective, but they have no authority and, of course, no expertise on the economic, political and ethical impact of their work. So I think my answer to that would be that uh, we don't want to put the brakes on technology completely. There's a downside of the precautionary principle, of course. We miss lots of opportunities and we should look back and realise that our present lives are far better than those of our predecessors because of technology and the population doubled in the last 50 years, but food production also doubled, so that's good. So we need technology and we're going to need it even more. But clearly we need to uh, try and control it as much as we can and realise that there's some kinds of technology uh, which can be exceedingly dangerous, especially if they get into the hands of a few fanatics. So I would describe myself as a technical optimist but a political pessimist in that I do worry about how we can control society because there's going to be clearly a growing tension between the three goals of privacy, liberty and security in a world where even a few people can cause something which can cascade globally. It's hard to know where we can go from there. Where we're going to go is back to Brexit, back to Trump, back to our weekly episodes in which we're going to try and make sense of the world of politics as it unfolds. Do please join us for that. We really hope you've enjoyed these guides. All of them are available on the website. You'll find lots of extra reading at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. <laughs>